It's actually uh, try number three. I had a <laughs> push the wrong button, then Amazon Amazon delivery driver ringing the bell, and I think there was something else I did wrong. But but in any case, uh, we just completed the first week of December of 2020. And 2020 has been one heck of a year. I mean, I, I said earlier, I feel like Pharaoh in the Ten Commandments, where there is just a number of things that are that are being thrown at us that we would have never predicted. But hopefully we'll all come through them safe and sound. And I hope that if you're listening to this, that you are engaging in, in safe practices as I am. I know some people, you know, to some people, the... This is a you know this is a hoax, and to others it's a it's a legitimate health health emergency. But uh, for the sake of for the sake of everyone around me, I'm doing my part, and fingers crossed that everyone else is. So, and that you know 2021 brings brings greater things. But if we don't do what we need to do, it certainly won't be bringing greater things. It'll be more of the same. On the first two podcasts, one of the things that I mentioned was. I was going to do some of these with just me going through a list of topics and things that are on my mind. And then also that I would have other guests. And when I start thinking about other guests, I I start thinking about all the different people that I know. I've met people from all over the world and in, in their native countries and via traveling and all. And so it's been a wonderful life. I, I have a I have a complete life and a complete slate of friends with lots of different viewpoints and lots of different backgrounds. And 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 they bring a lot to the table. And when I start looking at my phone, I start thinking about who on this list would make an interesting person or interesting people to talk to if I were if, if you gave me some money to make a movie and I then I looked at my list of friends that are contacts in my phone who on those lists would be a person or pe- or persons that you'd want to make a movie about every every movie has a leading man a leading lady and then you have support parts and and that's true of life you know not everybody's going to not everybody's going to be the captain of the ship you need the people rowing and you need the other you need passengers as well so so each of those each of those roles in life is important and each of those roles is important in the movie but most of the time people don't attend a movie to see the you know the bar the guy playing a bartender for 30 seconds they 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 attend to see the you know the person that's doing all the action or the you know the the woman that's doing everything so so when I start looking at my list of friends and potential guests for the podcast and who I would make who's who would make good topics for a movie uh, uh there are several people that that came to mind and one of those is is the guy that's going to be that's on today I've known him for about 21 years and we have a lot of different conversations over that 21 years. Uh, it's been and every conversation is either I, I was thinking about it earlier today. I said every conversation with him is either entertaining or it's enlightening. And then at some point, someone's in the someone in the course of his week is going to be threatened. <laughs> so so it's always an interesting that's always an interesting conversation and, and a friendship that I would not have expected. It's an accidental friendship that developed into a to one of my close friends. So so enough uh, enough of that. I'd like you to join me in a round of applause for my my good friend and my guest, attorney Ken Goldberg. Oh, welcome, Ken. Hey. So, how you doing? I'm doing fine, man. How are things in Dallas? 
Well, you know, I mean, you know, I wake up cold, but by now, you know, I'm only modestly, moderately cold. Come now, on. when you introduced me, I, I, I couldn't hear what was going on on your end, but I, I, I expected to hear this. So, I can't imagine what else you could have used to introduce me. No, I had some. I had a, some applause. Well. I guess that's as good as what I was using. What was that you were using? Sounds like a baby toy. Oh, it's a... Uh, it's just a uh, sound effect that I I associate with my uh, personality. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I didn't. I was thinking that sounds like a sounds like a baby toy. So, so, so. <laughs> well, so, you know what? I bought a really cheap sound effects machine. To use on a podcast like this, <laughs> so you just nailed it on the head. Oh. I probably should have. <laughs> I probably should have invested more money in a nicer machine. Well, if you're buying, <laughs> if you're buying your podcast stuff at Toys R Us and it says Fisher Price, that's not a law firm. <laughs> well, all right, I'm busted. I'm just okay. giving you. Hey, I can't. I can't say that I'm an expert. My friend Randy did all the did all the research, and he told me, hey, hey, you can get this Zoom podcast or PodTrack P4, and you can plug a cell phone in and call your friends. And so I don't know if that's a, a shameless plug, because I'm not getting any money from, from them. But, you know, I said, hey, if, it, if, it ma- if you make it easy, I'll do it, because this isn't, this isn't something that, you know, it's not something I'm banking on. Maybe I should. Uh, you've, got, you've got that calm, cool demeanor, and, and you know you've got that voice that uh, you know quasi-authoritarian, and you know like uh, authoritarian in that you sound you sound authoritative, and you know you're clearly smart. So I think you know this should be a success. Well, it, I, you know that sounds that sounds cool, but that's my my daily job is sales. So convincing people to do something that they don't necessarily may not necessarily want to do and I and I have to speak clearly and make you know make things make things organized and whatever but I'm I'm calm and cool on the on the surface but something that my dad told us when we were kids he said he said never let them see you sweat he said, always, always give that calm and cool demeanor, but be like a duck. You know, when you look at a duck on the surface of a pond, he's just gliding across the pond on the surface. But if you were to look underwater, you would see his feet pedaling very furiously. And that's something that my dad kind of told us. Never let, never, never, uh, never stop working, but, you know, kind of be calm and cool and, you know, do the work that you need to get to where you get to, so... Yeah, well, I'm jealous. My father never gave me any words of wisdom, so uh, uh, that's that's pretty cool, man. So, 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 Ken, out of curiosity, and I know you've got a podcast as well, but when people meet you, when people meet you, what is something, or or if you were going to give a, a bio of yourself, if someone said, Ken, describe yourself in, you know, fifteen seconds, what would you say? Well, you know that I've been a, a, a jack of many trades. Uh, I may have mastered one or two for a moment, but, you know, I, I get uh, distracted or bored and I walk away from something just 
just about the time I'm getting good at it. And so uh, I mostly have just meandered through life, uh, you know, going from being, a, 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 you know, one minute I'm a drug addict, next minute I'm a lawyer, one minute I'm uh, teaching firearms, you know, and that means I'm a Buddhist monk. I mean, you know, uh, I don't even know how to pin me down. Well, you know, when I met you, I, I think about when I met you, I didn't, you know, I didn't know any of those. I didn't know any of those things. But you, you, you know, your personality was very engaging. I mean, you're about the same height and size as my dad. And so you had a very engaging personality that that was easy. You kind of pulled up, pulled me in, me and my friend Big Steve, you kind of pulled us into conversation and, you know, we were planning on being at your gun range for, you know, 45 minutes and two hours later, there we are. But I, I think your, your jack-of-all-trades thing is that's, that's like I said in, in my intro, that's what makes people interesting. I mean, that's what, and there goes my doorbell yet again. I'm not going to answer it this time. I don't, I mean, it's like every time I start to do something, the doorbell rings. Uh, you need a concierge. A what? A concierge. You need a concierge. Oh, yeah. A doorman. Some collect packages, mail, whatever's coming, and then announce people if they're important enough. Well, what what seems to happen here is I can go, sometimes I can go a whole day, and nobody rings the doorbell, there's no emergencies or anything, and as soon as I get on, a, on an important conference call or get on, on something that I'm doing that I have to be involved in, all of a sudden there's a, there's a maintenance emergency and they're warning people or there's this or there, there's always something. But, you know, Ken, something I never bothered to ask you in all the years that we met is that with you being an attorney, I mean, you're having this, this varied career of, of, of life experiences, what made you get into law? I mean, was that was that something like out of high school, or you know, give me give give me some idea what led you to law? Oh uh, well, actually, I was bribed into being a lawyer. So um, no, no, I had no anticipation or pursuit of the law other than as a defendant. Uh, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, high school, you know, teenagers. You know, I, I was charged my first crime officially when I was 17. And probably my last official charge was, you know, when I was about 24 or 23. And so I, I had no aspirations to be a lawyer, but I was a street worker working with gangs, you know, drug addicts. And then... Um, what happened was I, I was trying to get a, a what do you call it, a master's degree, because I, I didn't really go to college. That's a long story, but you know I got into the Loyola University School of Social Work, and I was in the forever program. Uh, you probably are aware of those kinds. You know that I'll go to a two classes a semester, and you know in ten years they'll give me a, a social work degree, and. Uh, uh, my family, uh, my parents offered me uh, a scholarship to law school, and so we. Uh, so wait a minute. Uh, so took, so you didn't you didn't go to a traditional undergrad, like four years of undergrad no. school. Yeah, no, I went to a university without walls. 
Mm-hmm. So it was very non-traditional. And how long was that? Like uh, two years or so? It took me about two years. Uh, that that was what they call a uh, competency-based degree, not a credit hour. Uh-huh. So you had to show competency equivalent to a bachelor's degree. Uh-huh. So you had to work with the school to document your achievements, your background, your skills, and what you were learning. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be an adult to get in the program. You have to be in a field that's uh, related to the one you want a degree in. And then you uh, you can work off campus, except you need 27 classroom hours as part of, that's, that's the minimum requirement to uh, graduate is you have to have 27 uh, credit hours. Uh, those I got by taking something called CLEP exams, college level exam program. Mm-hmm. So I, I never went to a college class. And uh, after two years, they gave me a, a degree, a, a Bachelor of Science in Human Services. And uh, I was able to parlay that into admission into uh, a master's program in social work. And, and you... And you and you hear, like I said, it's never ending here. I live I live a block away from the police and fire station. So, what else can what else can take place in this podcast? Three doorbell rings. The, pol- the fire station is constant. Yeah, it's like I'm starting. To, I'm starting to wonder. Starting to wonder, or do they have a bug in my house to to let you know to, to check into that? So, so you were so you were so you were just this this. Uh, this nice Jewish guy in in Chicago having a good having a good time ro- roaming the streets, and your parents got you into this program, and then you, out of that, you got a bachelor's degree. Well, it's nice of you to characterize me as a nice Jewish guy. Uh, I've, never, <laughs> I've, never, I've never been referenced that way, and and you know, at my age, I'm beginning to enjoy any time the appellation of nice is associated with me. Um, uh, you, uh, you may recall, I may have told you, I was more of a street urchin. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't do anything that fell in the nice category, uh, typically. And uh, my parents, I was 30 years old when they offered to help me with law school. Oh, okay. So I, I, was, I was thinking you were like 20, 21 or so, like a you know, typical no, undergrad person. I didn't mean, yeah, no, I didn't enter a college program until I was 28, uh, 28 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got through that in about two years, and that was interrupted by a trip to uh, a drug treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had to take I had to take about a year off from the program because I was busy trying to recover. And then I went back, I finished, and I pretty much very shortly thereafter... Uh, went to the uh, School of Social Work, but I was probably about 33 when I entered law school. Oh, and how long were you? How, how long were you at Loyola? Well, I went to Loyola for two evening semesters for the School of Social Work. Oh, oh, I thought Loyola was the law school. Now, John Marshall Law School. I was there two and a half years. <laughs> now, I, I was in a hurry. I was in a hurry, so I got out. Uh, a little bit quicker than, than the average student, but uh, you know, I was getting old. I was worried I'd miss something. Now, when you think about your description of yourself, you said I was a a street urchin. You know, you never think about a person as a street urchin who gets their act together and then they become an attorney. 
when you were in, when you, you know, what made you interested in, I understand, you know, you completed the Loyola, the, you know, the social work thing, but what made you, what made you think it's a good idea to go to law school? Well, so, you know, when, when, when I worked with kids, one of the self-descriptions I gave, and maybe others agreed, was that I was an advocate. I was an advocate for kids that had no voice. They were disenfranchised, gang kids, mentally disordered, adolescently disturbed kids. I didn't work with, you know, Boy Scouts or, I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have an office at the Boys Club. Yeah, I you was, worked with kids you know, that I, were kind of like you. Yeah. Yeah, only more so, mm-hmm. because they didn't come from nice families typically, and they weren't they weren't runaways from a nice family. Mm-hmm. They were a lot of them with runaways from poor families. Oh, so so uh, okay, so then you were you were you were uh, a hard case from a nice family. So it's not like yeah, I come from an affluent. I come from an affluent Jewish family uh-huh. whose family owned a a, a, a business in Chicago for many, many years. We had we had the money and the resources to have raised all the children. I'm the fourth of four. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were well provided for, but there was an element of violence that uh, I experienced in my house. And so when I was old enough uh, physically to uh, go hide out in the streets and roam the streets and fend for myself, that's what I did. <clears throat> so I started leaving home when I was about 15, and probably by the time I was 17, I was going uh, pretty much for good. Um, I don't I don't recall looking back. I may have crashed with my parents a couple of times for short periods of time while I was regrouping, but, um, uh, and I worked with my family, the family business. It was not uncommon for me to go to work there, I would be offered a job or I'd ask for a job. And I, mm-hmm. if there was nothing else going on, I'm not stupid, I would take it. But my dad and I didn't have a good relation uh, uh, most of our lives together. That was beyond our reach most of the time. Mm-hmm. So um, so when I, when I left home, you know, uh, I lived in a nice, you know, uh, middle class neighborhood, but, you know, go go down the street and ask the Jewish family down the street, hey man, can I hide out here? While, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, until my parents stop looking for me. The answer is no, no, go home, right? Mm-hmm. But if you go into the inner city and, you know, uh, agree to sleep on a floor or in a closet, you know, uh, don't bother anybody, uh, you got a much better chance of, uh, uh, of somebody going, yeah, yeah, you can. He can stay here. Go ahead, let him, let him, let him stay here. You know, and and so that's what happened. I, I thrived in the inner city, uh, for a number of years, uh, living primarily with uh, black families and black communities. And uh, um, you know, I, I, part of me was a hippie, smoking weed, hanging out with the long hairs. I had long hair and everything, but. The rest of the time, I might be selling drugs or burglarizing um, to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I had my first apartment when I was a, uh, certainly no older than 17 when I got my first apartment. So, um, yeah, I, I, I found that, you know, they say that people will take the easy way out. 
So yeah. what is perception? You know, when 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 do you perceive uh, a fairly hostile street environment as being easier than being at home? You know, you got to have built up something. And, and sorry for that. Somebody's running a jackhammer in another apartment. So, <laughs> I can, yeah, they're doing HVAC work. Like I said, what? Don't be surprised if somebody runs a runs a herd of sheep through here in a second. I guess I guess I get free sound. I guess I could say free sound effects. There you go. So so Ken so Ken. So you you get into you get into law school, and and I'm always I've never been in law school, but everyone tells me at some point you kind of pick a specialty. Did you did, was your did you pick as a specialty the things that you knew working with underage uh, excuse me underprivileged or disenfranchised kids? Is you know was that your specialty so to speak? No, what I did was I just I just took. First, first of all, you have to take what they tell you to take for uh-huh. at least a year. For two semesters, you don't even, you don't even, uh, you have nothing to say. Mm-hmm. They just assign you your, your curriculum. And then, you know, before you can get out, you have to achieve certain uh, classes. And then you've got your electives. And my electives were, were just things that were broadly of interest to me. Uh, you know, uh, banking, banking law. You know, I used to work in a bank. I was interested in how do you negotiate a check? Why is a check negotiable? So, you know, I know something about that, and I know something about criminal law. Obviously, that was a real interest to me. I mean, I was the only one in my class that when we were reading a, uh, a murder case that had gone up to the appellate court, who could say to the rest of the class, oh, I know all these witnesses. <laughs> um, you know. Yeah, how rare I, is that? I, yeah. Yeah, I remember this murder. A young man was a shotgun in Hyde Park. Uh, and a lot of the witnesses that were arrested, that were rounded up and gave statements were guys my age that you know, we were teenagers then. So I was the only one in the class able to kind of go, oh, look at this. I know, I know all these people. So, um, you know, most of the kids in law school are college. They came there through academia. Yeah. You know, they went to high school, then they went to college, then they went to law school, and uh, they hadn't really been out doing. You know, and I had, I had, you know, 15 years already living on my own when I got to law school. So I had a different perspective, and I, I did absorb as much criminal and trial law whenever the opportunity presented itself to learn something about criminal or trial law and family law, because I, you know, everybody needs a family lawyer, but I mean divorce and stuff. I, I learned a little bit about that only because everybody I knew was always asking questions, right? Yeah. But, but you're right, that when I got out, the, the path for me, I set up a general practice, but really people were attracted to me because they knew that I, I knew. I mean, I knew a lot of criminals. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, can, I can see that because when you, I mean, sometimes as an African-American, you know, Caucasian people will always tell me, man, when does it end? When do you guys stop complaining? You know, what's, you know, what about this and what about that? And I always tell them, I say, we live on the same planet 
but we're in different worlds. And it doesn't matter if you grew up next door to me and you were Caucasian or Hispanic or Asian or whatever. The, the, color, the color of my skin places me in a different world than you. So when I think about, when I think about law and you, you talk about the, the disenfranchised or underprivileged people that get in trouble, typically from a legal perspective, the people that represent them have nothing in common with them. They may know, they may know the law, but they don't have any insight into the people that they're representing. You know, I mean, a an, an upper upper middle class white guy defending a you know defending a a street thug. You know that that attorney knows the law, but he doesn't know the inner workings of how of what led that other person to that or what made him that way. And I think about that's the person who you're relying on to defend you in many cases. So it's very rare. It's very rare that someone would have expertise in the field that they are, you know, that they're practicing. Yeah, well, and I'll give you an example on those lines. First off, I've been charged with crimes when I was 17 years old. I was charged with felony possession of marijuana with a facing 6 to 15 years for a dime bag, $10 worth of marijuana. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in those days, you know, this is the uh, 1971, there was no misdemeanor charge for I was, or pot. So any any amount of pot was a felony, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I was pretty scared. You know, the idea that uh, this 17-year-old kid could do 6 to 15 in a Illinois penitentiary, yeah, that was pretty, pretty uh, threatening. Uh, you know, jump ahead. Years later, uh, you're standing in court, and there's a guy next to you. He's charged with a crime, charged with any crime. But let's say it's a felony. Put it on a par with me, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're terrified, and they can't even open their mouth. They're not even allowed to open their mouth, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you asked me about the transition from uh, social work to law, and the transition is this: advocacy. All right, when you work with young people. I think it's healthy if you see yourself as an advocate for that kid, you know. Uh, I'm not there to rescue them. I'm there to create a bridge back to uh, being a, a, a member of society, being a, being franchised, right? Because mm-hmm. young people are disenfranchised and kids of color are double disenfranchised. So I saw my job is trying to provide an uh, empathic linkage to normal society for kids who disdained that, right? So I was an advocate. So if they wanted a job, they wanted uh, the, these kids wanted activities. There weren't enough activities in the community. I was there to help them, you know, and advocate for them to be able to do this and to teach them. Jump ahead, ten years. Now I'm a lawyer. What is a lawyer? He's an advocate, right? Uh-huh. I was just an advocate at a much higher level with potentially higher pay. That never did happen, but. You know the potential was there, but uh, so those here's those same type of people seeking somebody to help them in a situation where they are they were already disenfranchised most of the time before they were arrested. I mean, most of my clients were already marginal citizens in, in large measure. They either suffered from uh, a mental illness in a lot of cases, which had uh, cause some alienation, usually with family and community. Uh, sometimes they had 
not sometimes, they, they almost always had some sort of drug issue or alcohol issue. I mean, they were already uh, pushed uh, from the center more towards the fringe. So here comes somebody, and yeah, do you want a guy talking for you and speaking for you that uh, you feel uh, didn't have your best interest at heart? Because if you're going to spend time in the penitentiary, and here's what happened. One day, I lost the case. And uh, the kid turned to me, the kid, you know, he's probably 20, and he said, you know, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Goldberg. And I'm like, thank me, I just lost. And he said, yeah, but you worked hard. He said, you did everything you could do. I can go to prison now knowing that. Wow, you know, think about that. You know, people sitting in prisons all throughout this country thinking they got screwed because nobody gave a crap and so nobody did, you know, lifted every stone to try and help them. That must be a really miserable feeling. Well, well yeah, I mean, you, you think about you think about the average person. Like I said earlier, the disparity disparity in in terms of racial inequalities in in criminal justice, which that could be a you know that could be a week long podcast. But you think about you think about someone that looks like me, and they get a they either hire an attorney or they get a provided one. That person you know that person is going to get paid either way. You know, in the end, they want to win the case, but. You know, did they? Are they really gonna do? You know, a a, a court-appointed attorney gets assigned a, you know, gets a gets assigned to defend a thug. You know, does he? Does he ultimately? Does he really have the compassion necessarily necessary to defend that person, or does he just like, hey, this is just, you know, my job. At the end, I'm a clock in. I'm you know, like Fred Flintstone. I'm a clock in, and at the end of the day, I'm a yabba dabba do and clock out. So. I, I, I met I met a lot of good, good, heartfelt lawyers, guys who you know never spent a day in the inner city necessarily, mm-hmm. but they really had a good heart. You know, they'd have been hippies if they had been a little bit older. Mm-hmm. But I also met guys who didn't give a shit. Now I remember one guy saying to me at the uh, we had a lunch break near the end of our trial. He was representing the co-defendant on a murder case, mm-hmm. and he said me and, and co-counsel that I was working with, a guy from law school that was helping me, he said, uh, you guys want to go get a drink? Wait, a drink? No, man, we're, you know, we got this trial, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we're not going to prison when this is over. What are you worried about? And I'm like, wow, that's cold. And uh, another time I was, oh, actually that same case, I came out of the courthouse and I saw a friend of mine who'd been a lawyer for many years a guy who really was a nice guy. And uh, he said, how are you doing? And I said, oh, man, I'm so screwed up, you know. I'm doing my first murder trial, and I, I shouldn't have took the case. I'm not qualified. I, 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 you know, I'm I'm, hemming, I'm stuttering because I'm really screwed up. And he said, did you get paid? And I said, well, I got about two-thirds of my fee, mm-hmm. you know. And he said, if you got paid, you won. And I looked at him and said, and I, I can't talk to you. And I turned away, I turned away, and I, you know, I walked away. Now, that was so dejected that in his head, it was a, I, a my personal victory was getting paid. I'm like, yeah, no thanks. Well, and, and I saw this across the spectrum of lawyers. Well, you see that when you, when you think about, when, when, when I see politicians and even like the ones today that, uh, 
you see politicians and, and people that say, I want to get tough on crime. Well, do you really? Do you, if you really want to get tough on crime, that usually means let's lock up people like the younger version of Ken Goldberg. <laughs> you know, let's, 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 let's throw the book at these, at these disenfranchised poor people. And while we're, while we're throwing a book at them, you know, let's make money by building private prisons and all that. I mean, there's a whole different, different thing. But I had a guy, me and him stopped talking because he was, he, you know, he was talking about, about, uh, about about crime and in and the justice system, and I said, "Well, look at a guy like Bernie Madoff. Now, what did he what did he defraud the citizens of the U.S.? Was it like fifty billion dollars or so? And yeah. and you know, you think about him, and then you think about some kid in the inner city who might steal a can of beans to to eat, or might steal a package of bubble gum, and then you throw that kid you throw that kid into a criminal justice system for a two dollar you know a two dollar can of beans you know he or she spends time in prison and then you expect them to come out i mean i i'm just thinking about me if you were to throw me in prison i at, at any point in my life i doubt that i would have been reformed because i know the way my mind works my mind would have been out for justice or revenge i shouldn't say justice Revenge. So I shudder to think that if I, if you had thrown me to jail for something, I'm the guy in the movies that would have, that would have found where you live and tracked you down, and God knows what I would have done, even though I know I broke the law. But I see that. I see that, man. And it's, you know, they're just, just, just the inequity there. What is a, what have you seen? What have you seen? Or when you got out of law school, what have you seen that was? That was a you know something that made you happy as an attorney, as well as something that was the biggest. What was the biggest disappointment? What was the biggest surprise with the career? What is the biggest disappointment? Well, you know, we 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 uh, we claim this is the greatest country, right? And 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 it's not. Oh, no, by any stretch. Yeah, and we're led to believe that our justice system is the justice system. On, and maybe on paper it may appear that way, but in reality, it's a tremendous disappointment. And you know, we were just talking about, you know, what happens to these defendants. Well, you know, because of my background in social work, it was not uncommon for me from time to time to be asked to go to a school, uh, usually an inner city school, and, and talk to kids. You know, like part of an assembly or something. Hey, why don't you come in and talk to the kids about? drugs and alcohol, because I had been a drug counselor at that point in street work. You know, I just come in and, you know, talk to them. So, you know, I would look at this audience, and, and inevitably there were a significant number of kids of color, Puerto, uh, Puerto Rican, Mexican, black, um, islanders, whatever. And, and I would make a point of telling them, you know, uh, I know this environment you're in, you know, opportunity, some of you are already in a game, but let me tell you something, you know, uh, you don't want to be in the you don't want to be in the criminal justice system. You know that your judge isn't going to be black, your prosecutor's not going to be black. They're going to be white people, and they got no empathy for you. And they've got a seat for every last one of you. There's a seat in a prison somewhere waiting for your ass to sit in it. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to be there because your life will be so out of control. 
and, and I could go, I could tell you stories of judges that just made me sick. Some of the stuff they said that they thought was relatively rational and, and reasonable that I thought was so insensitive and so lacking in empathy that I just, you know, I just couldn't do it anymore, actually. At, at a certain point, I said, I, I can't, I can't participate in this system. This is bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you got an occasional black judge, an occasional black prosecutor, that doesn't change a system. Yeah. The system is just, uh, the system is just racist as shit. The other thing you would tell them, you say to a kid, listen, you know, uh, I would always tell my clients, you need to wear a tie. Uh, anytime you come to court, wear a tie. You know, I said, because on, on an average day, uh, the judge sentences a certain percentage of everybody that appears in it. He sentenced them to jail and or prison, right? So you want to distinguish yourself from the others. And, and the second thing is, all things equal. If a white man walks in charged with the same exact crime as you, if one guy is going to get probation that day and one guy is going to prison, which one do you think the probabilities lie in going to prison, right? So you don't want to be in this system if you can avoid it. And so the only way you can avoid it, of course, is you know, don't don't do criminal acts. Even that doesn't assure you that you won't be in the system. I represented many an innocent person, but uh, you you, you got to go with the probabilities. If you're committing crimes, you know, probability is eventually you'll get arrested. So, um, and then we we've, we've done so many things with the criminal justice system, we, removing uh, discretion from judges at time of sentencing, establishing mandatory minimums. You know, we have disenfranchised a what, two out of every three black men in the United States by convicting them of some sort of crime, or three out of five, I guess it is, are, are, have some contact with the criminal justice system, either as probation, parole, or presently incarcerated. So, um, and if you don't know what that means, uh, people should Google, what are the consequences of being a convicted felon, for instance, when you're seeking housing, seeking employment, so you're right. You get beat down. You go to prison. You don't come out a model citizen. Uh, I'll tell you one other anecdote. I'll shut up. But you know, I was in I was in uh, Arizona trying a, a murder case. Actually, it was a plea bargain. I said to the judge, I said, "Would you put this kid in drug treatment while he's in prison? Because all these cases he's put together, he was high every every time." Mm -hmm. and he said, "I'll do what I can, but I don't have a lot of control." He said. He said to me, did you know that the Arizona legislature rewrote the penal code to remove the words rehabilitation from the penal code so that prisons would not have any burden of providing any sort of rehabilitative services to any of its prisoners in the system? I'm like, wow, that's cold. He said, yeah, that's my point. <laughs> so, well, uh, something I think about about Ken is every time they say or they when, when, whenever whenever the topic of of, of you know sentencing or, or the criminal justice system or law enforcement and all of those things come into play the 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 people who are impacted are, are almost like you said are almost exclusively people of color. I wonder if we woke up and and that's for that's for that can be for a variety of reasons. We don't know all the different. I mean, as a black person, I know that sometimes people commit commit crimes because they want to eat. Other times they need to pay. They need to pay to have a roof over their head. And so 
you know, they 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 do that as a tactical way to get, you know, to get through. But I always wonder if you woke up tomorrow and the roles were reversed, if 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 the inner city was primarily full of Caucasians committing the crimes, would the laws change? You know, if 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 most of the most of the smoke because because when you when you look at it, ha- has there been any studies that say, you know, the guy selling drugs in the neighborhood as opposed to the guy defrauding the savings alone, you know, the 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 executive that's defrauding pension funds and and you know looting looting finances and 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 rigging contracts that person the damage that they do propagates way more harder than or it, it hits more people than the guy selling a, a you know a bag of weed and i always but oh, yeah there was, there, was a, there was a man in california where after they passed the three times you're out mm-hmm. you know you can get life in prison on your third your third uh, offense Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess they're supposed to be felony offenses, but if you're already been convicted two times and you commit another crime, there was a case of a man who stole a pizza mm-hmm. and got life in prison because it was the third strike, right? Mm-hmm. Three strikes are out, you know. And, and a lot of people said, you know, that that doesn't that doesn't smell right. But that was the law, you know. Three strikes and you're out. You, you know, it was supposed to be a mandatory life sentence. Uh, you know, I, I think I told you I recently, about a year ago, went back to Chicago and testified for a client of mine who was 14 years old when he was involved in a shooting and two oh, yeah. guys died. And he got, at 14 years of age, got life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, how can anybody do anything at the age of 14 where you would slam the door for the rest of their life and not even give them an opportunity to demonstrate reformation or rehabilitation. How can you do that? What what society guidelines and mores are you operating with if you believe that that, you know, I, you know, even if you could say as a society, well, we're going to give them a life sentence, but we're going to establish some criteria. You know, if they can complete an education, if they can stay out of trouble, da da da, then we'll we'll give them parole. No, no, this was. Life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, luckily, the Supreme Court has intervened, and a lot of these young people are getting new hearings, and they will be able to get out of prison someday in, in, in a lot of these cases. But it's, it's you know, it's, it's tragic. And, and the studies are to address your, your concern about what if it was white people getting locked up at the rate that black people are getting locked up? You know, the all the studies show that it's inherently skewed so that. No matter how many white people you push into the system, when it comes time to establish what charges will be leveled or what punishment will be uh, enforced, uh, historically, people of color receive the short end of the stick. And that's empirical data. That's not anecdotal data. That's the empirical data. Uh, you know, when police departments do uh, what they call... Uh, Oh, God, same thing. But when they stop vehicles, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they pretextually they're stopping you for some traffic offense. But in reality, the police will often admit this is a good way for them to make arrests, you know, find guns or drugs. You know, overwhelmingly, they're stopping black people, just stopping them. Mm-hmm. You know, when 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 all they've got is 
we're looking for crime, not we see crime. We're looking for crime. So we're just kind of shuffling the deck here. Oh, look, there's the ace of spades. Let's grab that guy. Um, it, it's just inherently infused with injustice for a variety of reasons. And who's the most disenfranchised historically? It was persons who never even started out on the economic scale. Uh, you know, black people when, didn't start out here even as members of our society. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if somebody wants to uh, castigate you and tell you, well, uh, when, when, when will your people stop committing all these crimes? You know, just slap them, just punch them out, you know, because there's no talking. There's, you know, people don't understand historical context. Well, people don't. I think they understand it. They don't. They benefit from the inequity, so they don't want to. They don't want to. They don't want to participate in the, you know, in the discussion. Like, you know, from the '60s, where well, they say if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. I think. I think one of the comedians was a D.L. Hewley that said. They said, as long as you are, are you performing a service or you're entertaining people of other races, then you have value. If you if you're not making them laugh, if you're not doing something that makes their life easier or doing something that they benefit from, you don't. They have no reason to you know to participate in your in your existence, but. You know, I, I, well, uh, I, when you said looking for crimes, I, I mean, I've made people mad over the years because, you know, when ha- Halloween people used to dress up in costumes and stuff, and you'd see people dress up. I'm a, I'm a pimp. I'm a drug dealer, and they would almost exclusively dress up like somebody from the inner city or someone that they thought was black or whatever. And I made people mad. I said, I said, if the police really want to make a major drug drug raid, they could go to. Shops at Legacy in Plano, right there at the corner of Legacy and the Tollway, Legacy West and Shops of Legacy, put a virtual fence around those bars on a Saturday night and start start checking things, and you would get you would you would clean up on cocaine, ecstasy, and all kinds of other stuff. A lot, and and when people would ask me, you know, a drug. De- imitate a drug dealer or dress like a drug dealer i said if i a drug user i was saying, i'm going to dress like you you know somebody from somebody from the sub somebody from the suburbs who looks looks like they wouldn't do a thing but you know high on cocaine beating their wife up and doing all kinds of other stuff but but in any in any case i know we spent a lot of time on the on the law stuff but that was that's always been something over the years that i Things pop into my head, and I and I ask questions about them. One last question along along those lines. I guess I can I can I can I can move that into into another topic, and that is as a Jewish a long haired Jewish kid who sought protection and solace and a roof over his head in a, in the black community. How did they? How did you know? And, and I and I know I know that's possible because black people we are typically accepting you know we 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 know what it's like to be excluded so we typically want to include people and and i've said to people several times you can have you can have other races and they'll say let's build a golf course or let's build a community and let's make this super exclusive and and ex- exclude people and african americans and and hispanics typically want we're typically inclusive people 
You know, we know what that feeling is like to be intentionally left out on a repeated basis or to be denied or be denied the fun or, or relationships or friendships based on that. So so that being that being said, I can I can see where a, a long haired Jewish guy would be accepted into the black community. But can you share, you know, some of those first experiences? You know, my suspicion is if, if, if they had been well known that I came from an affluent Jewish family, I probably would have had more trouble because they've probably been worried about repercussions. Uh-huh. You know, well, if your family finds out you're here, you know, can they harm me? But, you know, I just look like another punk, uh-huh. um, long-haired punk. And so I think I was probably mistaken to some degree for being a kid who probably came from nowhere and had nowhere to go. And so it was not uncommon for the parents to more or less kind of turn their back. And I kept moving. So I never I never landed in a black family's home for more than a couple of days, right? Okay. I kept moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so nobody knew the extent of my... Except my friends, you know, my peers knew I was constantly mm-hmm. moving, but uh, I think most families, but, um, you know, I, I think you're right. Uh, listen, uh, if I go to dinner at a, a typical, let's say, inner city, black, Hispanic family for a holiday, you're the only non-family member. Uh, if you don't already know this, you will be treated at, at, like royalty in most cases. You know, they will they will bend over backwards to make sure you are comfortable and you are well fed. On the other hand, I grew up with affluence. I can tell you that if you're the you know, invited into a lot of affluent white families and I'm not saying across the board, a uh, more common experience will be, you know, uh you're just there. You know. Oh, you're Bobby's friend here. You do you want something to eat? I mean, you know, it's not that you'll be spurned or anything, mm-hmm. but you won't be greeted with the warmth that you will experience from families that um, are in, uh, have welcomed you in their home and feel as uh, that culturally it is important to treat somebody, as you said, uh, another, another street or to whatever they thought of me, and to realize that, you know, this should be an inclusion and not an exclusion. So I was the beneficiary. And let me establish something else that's very important to me. When I was getting my ass kicked as a little Jewish boy by a lot of white, Irish, Italian, and Polish, and everything, when my neighborhood turned black, my troubles ended in large measure because the black kids had a much stronger sense of fairness than a lot of the kids that I knew before then. So it was not uncommon to get uh, beat up or chased by kids much bigger than you. But when these young black kids started coming into my school and and I befriended them, they rarely tolerated anybody picking on somebody smaller, which a common refrain was, why don't you go find somebody your own size? And, And we're not talking about defending a friend is just a classmate. Like, uh, you know, Ken's a, Kenny's a member of our class. What are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. uh, go find, you know, go find somebody your own size. It wasn't like, you know, we were, we were real tight, uh, cause we weren't, but they had a sense of fairness that I had not had 
displayed to me before. So, um, early on. Over the years. I saw this. Over the years, I mean, I would tell what you said about neighborhood stuff. I would tell white people that I said, you can have you can have a neighborhood of Fox and Jacobs style homes in 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 Texas where I grew up, and you could have a neighborhood of of those types of homes, and there could be all black people. A white family could move in. Black people would say, hey, this is Bobby. Bobby's my neighbor. Black people would protect Bobby. You know, they would invite Bobby to to, you know, cookouts. And hey, this is my this is my buddy. Bob. They go to the bar with anybody. Anybody. It's almost like you a white person could have a scarlet letter that says, don't mess with Bobby or you're going to jack with this whole neighborhood. And, you know, white guy could go to the black bars with us and all and have a good time and everything and dance with women and come out of there having a good time. Most Caucasian people are afraid to death to engage in social activities where the vast majority of people are African-American because they think something's going to somebody's going to hurt them. And that's not the case. They tend to they tend to expropriate pieces of your culture and bring it back into theirs. I want to, you know, I, I, you know, women's braided hair. I told the guys that I remember when, when, you know, nobody wanted white women didn't want to look like black women. They didn't want to have big. They didn't want to have larger lips or full lips. They didn't want to have a, a, a big booty. You know, they wanted they wanted medium sized tits and long hair and a flat butt. And now, you know, you look at you look at the things that have been pulled from the culture. All of a sudden, like in the 80s, they would say, oh, my God, she's got a hair weave. Well, and everybody would make fun of a black woman if she had a hair weave. Now that white women are wearing hair weaves, they call them extensions. So all of a sudden, an extension is cool. Our hair weave is not, you know, a. a a, a, a big a big butt on a woman now is considered you know that's the price of entry and then if you go like me having friends of all all different races and everything most of my life I've been in all kinds of bars and clubs and stuff but when I would go there were bars in in cities where I would go in with if I hadn't been with some of the biggest white guys in the world I the, the rest of the white guy, people in there shunned me they treated me like crap. And so I would go so I could have fun with my with my friends. You know, we'd have fun among ourselves in the middle of in the middle of all this other dysfunction in many, in many cases. But, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been I've walked into bars with with a couple of friends and come out and there are pickup trucks outside and guys have guns and knives drawn saying we don't want you here. This is Tyler, Texas, <laughs> you know, Longview, Texas. They, we don't want you here. And so it's very what you what you said kind of struck a chord and is why I went down that went down that path is as black people, we're very inclusive. And if you show affinity for us, if you show love for us, you'll typically be the recipient of protection. You'll be the recipient of love and friendship because we know that feeling. We know, and I can tell people right now, moving from Texas to California, this is a different, this is, 
these are on different planets. But but in any case, something I was going to ask you is is, you know, growing up Jew, I'm guessing you were you weren't an observant Jew. And the reason I, I, I mention that is how did you make the transition to Buddhism? Because because most of us Buddhism is less of a, a way to cope with, you know, we think of that, most Americans think of that as a religion as potential, as, as opposed to potentially a, you know, a coping mechanism or a meditation. Can you, can you share what led you to get involved in that? Yeah, well, like you said, I was not a religious Jewish person at any time, but I did get by mitzvah, and, you know, I was in a synagogue the first 13 years of my life, and, uh, uh, Mandy Patinkin and I uh, went to, through Hebrew school together. Mandy Patinkin became a uh, an Broadway. And, yeah. Yeah, he's an actor and a singer, and I became a punk. But, um, so, I, you know, but once you start hanging in the streets, well, anyways, yeah, I wasn't very religious. You can jump ahead to the time I was uh, 50-something and... Uh, uh, when the economic tsunami, as I referred to, 2008, 2007, it, uh-huh. uh, it, it took a great deal of my wealth uh-huh. that I had accumulated uh-huh. and uh, left me uh, significantly depressed and upset. I had two teenage daughters at that point. And uh, so I, I was looking for something to help relieve the uh, uh, the anxiety, and I decided to pursue meditation because I was looking for anything. And I read a book by Eckhart Tolle, by the way, mm-hmm. recommended uh, meditation. So I started. I've, I've heard of him, but I've not read any of his his stuff. No, well, he's got a good book called The Power of Now that that uh, uh, does does a real good job of talking about you know living in the present moment. You know, mm-hmm. don't carry the past. Because the past isn't here. Don't live in the future. The future's not here. You know, all, all nothing happens except what happens in this moment. Okay. Um, and I understood that. And, you know, he talked about suffering. And, and he essentially said, you know, the suffering is a choice. And I was suffering terribly from having lost all this money and still losing. I was still losing it because uh-huh. I had signed contracts for a business that had gone under. Uh-huh. So I was still paying every month on these contracts. So... Um, and then I met this uh, uh, local Buddhist monk, this was in Tucson, Arizona, who was teaching meditation periodically, and uh, I would go to his little uh, gatherings, and then uh, one day uh, we agreed that I would come out to his temple, because he was doing it in, in, at the library, mm-hmm. and I went out there, and I told him, you know, I need help, and he wanted, uh, I was hiking, by the way, all the time in the mountains. And so he said, oh, well, you know, he wanted to hike. I wanted to meditate. So we helped each other. I, I took him into the mountains several, uh, probably three, four times a week. And we would meditate. And, and, you know, by the way, there's nothing you can talk to a Buddhist monk about except Buddhism. And they don't <laughs> have girlfriends. You know, they, they don't have fancy cars. Uh, yeah, there's not a lot to talk about except Buddhism. So uh-huh. I, I, you know, I'm naturally curious. I asked a lot of questions, and I, I began to feel relief. I began to recognize that you know the money was gone. Uh-huh. You know, I was no longer affluent, and you know, a dwelling on it wasn't helping. So I had to find acceptance, 
and my meditation was helping my my practice. I call Buddhism a practice. Mm-hmm. It's a religion which I have practiced, but anybody can practice Buddhism without being a Buddhist. I mean, there's just a lot of really fundamental reality that's delivered through uh, through Buddhism that anybody would be hard pressed to deny. So, um, and by the way, Jews typically are at, are are often found in the forefront of Buddhist teachers in America. It's not uncommon in the United States to find some of the leading Buddhist teachers are Jewish, men and women. We we are much more flexible than, than say, ca- Christians, Catholics, uh-huh. you know. When, yeah. when we're looking, examining, and searching, we don't have the hang-up of, oh, you know, this is a, a you know, a, a, this is a, a sin. Yeah. This is, you know, this heresy. This, this is a bad thing. We don't have that. So we kind of walk in and go, hey, what's up? What are you guys doing? Can I do it too? Whereas I've been teaching meditation for nine years. I see Christians walk into the Buddhist temple with trepidation. You know, you see the anxiety and think, I'd like to learn to meditate. Do I have to be a Buddhist? No, no. You just have to sit down and take instructions. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I remember so you used I to post. You used to post when I back in the day when I had Facebook, and you were living in Tucson. I would look at some of the pictures that you would post with various with various Buddhist monks and teachers, and and you're hiking in the mountains and what looked like desert areas. And I'm thinking that there has to be an interesting conversation taking place there. <laughs> we would we would hike, you know, in Tucson. You got to get up early. Mm-hmm. So especially in the summer. Yeah, you know, it gets you, boiling you hot there. Out. Yeah, it was it was hot. So, you know, it was not uncommon to meet whoever you're hiking with, monk, whoever, uh, at pre-dawn. And you're going to, you know, typically you're going to hike at least maybe two hours uphill and then two hours downhill. That's four hours of chatting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, a lot of my walks were with guys in, in 12-step recovery, because I'm in 12-step recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about recovery for four hours. I mean, it's a really, you know, I, I bike a lot, and sometimes I bike with people. There's not as much chatter. It's not as easy to chat mm-hmm. when you're bicycling. If you're running, it's not easy. But if you're hiking, you know, you may be single file, or you may be walking alongside each other, then you're gonna, you got, you got a chance to chat and uh, get to know or talk about spiritual matters, Buddhist matters, personal matters, whatever it is. And I derived a lot from that. And then I helped start a Buddhist temple in Tucson with a monk, and I ordained as a novice uh, because I wanted the experience, and I wanted, I wanted to continue to find uh, a method that would take me away from the uh, internal violence that I've lived with my whole life mm-hmm. to a, a, a better place, and it's and it's worked. It's been it's helped a lot. Uh, you know that I'm an aggressive guy, and that you know uh, I, I lived in uh, nightclubs and stuff. And you know, if somebody started trouble with me, you know, it always brought a smile to my face. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, you, oh, you want violence? <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of a, a lot of them didn't probably didn't know what I knew about you that you always had a would have had a forty five <laughs> a forty five or or a weapon on you at all times too. Yeah, and I and I don't like people that, that are you know, that are starting trouble or bullying, so 
you know, if you triggered me, it, to me it was like, oh, 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 you want you want problem, you want to intimidate somebody. All right, so you know, my 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 philosophy was, I'm going to take you someplace so dark, you're going to be sorry you you started with me, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and, and so I, I used to enjoy uh, an ambiance of violence, not because I like violence, I don't, uh, but I'm comfortable in an environment where that's the undercurrent. So if you if you want to go there, uh, I've been there so many times that that was you know mm-hmm. that was a comfortable place to be. Today I'm not as comfortable, but I still am. I'm I still am more comfortable being around polite company when I don't feel like being polite. Uh, mm-hmm. I still struggle with that. Well, like my something that that along those lines, my friend Randy, you know, you grow up in Texas and, you know, a gun is the answer to everything. And, you know, I was, you know, I had collecting guns at one point and, you know, I said, I got a gun in my when I'm in my car, I got a gun in the car. And and then Randy made an interesting point. And I said, yeah, you're right. He said, he said, why? You know, and I moved out here. Well, you know, getting concealed handgun license in California is essentially impossible. But Randy asked me, he goes, he said, why would you want to, if you carry a gun around with you, most likely you're going to find trouble. You're going to find a reason to use that. And do is that something that you really want to do? And at first, at first it sounds like, yeah, great, man. I got a gun. I can, I can, uh, I can defend myself. But then I thought about something that you, you told me probably the two years after we met and I and you said I, I asked about the 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 civil and criminal cost of of murder and I, and I and as related to robbery and I asked you I said if I if I'm at home and somebody breaks into my house what should I do and you said defend yourself and you know the law will look at you differently if you're defending yourself if a threat is coming at you if you're actively in a threat but if you come home and someone is going out your out of your house with property or possessions just let them go because that's not worth the potential civil and criminal penalties that you have and then you may have to live with killing someone over you know, a VCR or an Xbox. And I, I still think about that now. I go, you know, property is just property. You know, do I do I want to kill someone over electronics? And, you know, I, I so when I start thinking about that, I said, I want to be protected. But to Randy's point and well, and, and California law as well, if I got pulled over and I had had a 45 in the floorboard or in the side pocket of the car, I'm, you know, Bye-bye career, hello, you know, hello something else. So, you know, it's a little bit different. I, mean, I just want to say that it's not necessarily true that Jerry got in trouble. I mean, I've been carrying pretty much daily since 1992, and, and I have I have threatened to use a firearm to thwart somebody who was talking about harming me. Mm-hmm. I've never, you know, I've never started trouble because I could. Um, I find it uh, comforting, but... Uh, so, so I, I carry, but you know, I just spent two and a half months in Thailand. Nobody's carrying, and I wasn't carrying, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel any need to carry 
because nobody had a gun. You know, we've just gotten so nuts here. Yeah. Everybody's carrying. A uh, gun is the answer for everything. Yeah. yeah, I'm not taking a position on pro or anti-gun, but I do know that when you've got over 300 million guns available, I feel insecure. <laughs> yeah. Know? I feel like, you know, I want to be one of the 300 million uh, people holding a gun. Uh, well, there's not that people. A lot of people have so many guns, but I want to be one of the guys that's ready. Mm -hmm. um, but if all things are equal, and I know that the odds are you don't have a gun, well, then I'm more likely to be willing to take the whooping yeah. uh, than I would be if mm -hmm. uh, I was concerned, that, you know, what you were going to do. So it's just, you know, a lot of people carry it. Nobody's ever known it. I, I happen to be known for it because I own it. The gun range. Yeah. Well, like with me, with me, uh, the most irritating, this sounds crazy because I do own guns, but by far and large, the most irritating people in the world to me are gun owners. And I guess that's because I've been around, you know, growing up in Texas, you've got people who or just a gun is the answer for everything. I gotta have a nine millimeter. I gotta have a forty caliber. I gotta have this. I got why. You know, I mean, you you know, it's America. You spend your income on whatever you want to spend it on, but all these different ways, all you know, all these different calibers. I had what does Leonard Skinner say? A handgun is made for killing. <laughs> you know, how many different how many different guns does you know does an accountant you know a low level accountant really need? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So well, we it, had we had a quick customer at the range. Been there a few times. I don't remember how many. It's been years ago. And sorry for the sound effects here. That's another one. That's somebody's vacuum. I guess they're vacuuming up the stuff they were jackhammering next door. This young man had pulled out a gun and discharged in Irving, Texas, because somebody was stealing his stereo out of his car. And the Irving police must have come, as I recall. I don't know the whole story anymore. I remember at the time. But anyways, they hassled them a lot. I don't I don't think they charged them, but they certainly asked them about discharging the firearm, right? Mm -hmm. And he came into the store, and he was all pissed off, you know, with the Irving police, a bunch of assholes, and, you know, it's going on. I'm like, well, so what happened, you know? And he told me, I said, well, you know, well, what made you think it was a good idea to shoot somebody over a car stereo, you know? And he looked at me, he, was, he got mad at me, never came back. You know, I said, you know, that was a that wasn't a particularly smart move. You know, discharging a firearm in the direction of a guy fleeing with a car stereo. Mm -hmm. You know, urban cops don't need you shooting a firearm in the general direction of a uh, even a fleeing felon. You know, now under the law, police can't shoot at a fleeing felon. You you have more rights to shoot a fleeing felon than they do. Police officer has to assert that uh, they believe there was an immediate risk to themselves or to the community if they're shooting at somebody who's leaving. Uh, so that's, that's a test that they're aware of. They don't care if it's a black uh, suspect, but, you know, you'll find that's one of the reasons they don't shoot white guys nearly as often. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they know that there's uh, prohibition uh, pursuant to Supreme Court, uh, court cases that uh, limit their ability to use deadly force against somebody who's retreating or leaving. Uh, yeah, that, you know, yeah like I said, that doesn't apply, that doesn't seem to apply to us. No, and especially like in Texas, we've got a quirky law that says you can shoot a fleeing felon in the night 
You can't shoot them in the day, but if it's nighttime, you can go ahead and shoot them. We've got some quirky stuff here. We're a little, we're a little nuts. Yeah. You know, speaking of that, speaking of that, being a native, you know, from Chicago, what are some of the differences that, you know, I, I, it's hard knowing you over these, these many years and you being in Dallas, Texas, it's like a fish out of water. I mean, you, there's nothing about you to me that says you belong in the Southern U.S. because your, your views and your experiences and your life are not, you're not a Southerner. And, you know, you, you have an, a more of expansive view. So I, I, I'm always curious what, other than potentially the, the cheap cost of living, what, what keeps you in Texas? Uh, well, you know, originally I came here for a wife that, you know, she got a job here, so we left Chicago. Came mm-hmm. here. We got divorced. I owned the gun range at that point, so I stayed there. And then I had the radio show, and then I had nothing but my alcoholism to keep me there. You know, then I went to Tucson. Well, when, when the economic tsunami came uh, and pretty much wiped me out uh, financially, uh, we tried to regroup in Tucson, but their economy had been hit even worse than most places, Tucson's a very limited economy. It's really large, uh, in large measure, depend upon uh, people moving down there and, and, and retiring from the north. Mm-hmm. Well, people couldn't retire. The 401ks have been wiped out, so they stopped coming, so the construction industry died. Anyways, we decided to come back to Dallas and get back in the gun business. Mm-hmm. So that's how I landed up back in Dallas. And well, once, you know, that didn't work out. But once I was back, I didn't feel like moving again. Although I'm beginning to change my mind. The Texas Attorney General just filed some case in uh, uh, in the Supreme Court uh, trying to get... Uh, you to get four like other states hearing. to overturn. Jesus, you know. Right, right, right. So so it's stuff like that. You know, we've got a uh, our, our governor and our lieutenant governor and our attorney general here are to the right of a till of the hunt, as the saying goes, and, and they're obnoxious with it. You know, we're, we're one of the few states that turned down expansion of Medicaid, which would have brought tens of thousands of Texans who are without health insurance under the Medicaid umbrella, and it would have cost us a pittance in exchange for billions of federal dollars, but just to show that, you know, we don't have to do something because the feds are uh, invite us to it. We're just going to screw over poor people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much longer I'm going to stay in Texas. My daughters are grown. I'm grown. Uh, my friends are here. My, my lifestyle's here. But I'm kind of getting tired of this whole right-wing ambiance. Uh, by the way... Uh, that was about, that was about has, 90... That was probably 95% of... I mean, I always want to live in California anyway, but the, the whole... Over the top right wing stuff was honestly probably ninety five percent of when I said I gotta go. <laughs> I you know inside in, inside my head I was just rage filled and you know that's not that's not a place to you know that's not a good way to go through life. Well, you know most of my friends here are liberal in Dallas and Austin and probably San Antonio are are, are relatively liberal compared to the rural part of the state, but um, it, it gets, it, you know, I be, having been in the gun industry, a lot of my friends were too very right-wing, and that's been a problem the last couple of years under the Trump administration. By the way, Biden has nominated a black retired general 
to take over the Pentagon, be yeah. Secretary of Defense. Yeah, that's the so first that's time. A, first time that's yeah. that's taken that's taken place. We'll see if we'll see if uh, if he gets approved. Well, that that certainly is up going to be up for grabs. But in the meantime, you know, to see this Biden administration forming, and to see you know a resurgence of people, uh, you know, it was it was it was a difficult uh, four years ago. Or, or maybe it was even two years ago, when they published photos of the incoming interns for the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot of interns, right? They're, they're college students. They go to Washington, D.C. They serve as free help mm-hmm. for these professional uh, yeah. uh, people. And they showed a picture of the Republican, you know, interns. Mm-hmm. And they were almost exclusively white. And then they showed the Democrat interns, and they were quite diverse. I'm not throwing Republicans under the bus at the moment. I'm just saying that, you know, uh, there's been a lack of diversity or even a concern about diversity. And so it's good to be back moving towards an arena where that will be given some value. That diversity has a value, and our society recognizes it. And if you do something about it, and hopefully, you know, we will see a diminution in this white supremacist movement that's uh, been well, its ugly well, growing head. up, growing up in the South, what I've told people is they need to. There needs. There's some. You know, the Confederacy only lasted. You know, slavery lasted. You know, over 300 years. Confederacy lasted. Five years, and we're still suffering the 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 downstream impacts of that. But in the South, they don't teach you that as a student that there was really anything wrong with slavery and the Confederacy. I went to school there. I went to school in the South. They tell you General Robert E. Lee, he was an honorable man. I'm thinking, and so the whole time I'm sitting there in school, I'm thinking, an honorable man doesn't lead an army to fight, you know, to fight to defend slavery. But a lot of the South, they te- they don't teach you the they don't teach you the the negative impacts of that. They you know they make that sound like that's part of their part of their history. And I always tell people, I said, if you go to Germany, they don't have schools named after. Heinrich Himmler and Reinhard Heydrich and all of those, you know, Martin Bormann Junior High, they don't have that kind of stuff in Germany. They, they you know, their Third Reich was what twelve years, and they, they, they teach you about that, but they don't glorify that. But if you go to the Southern U.S., yeah, you can, you can go to a elementary school named after Confederate general, a middle school named after Confederate general, a high school named after Confederate general. A college that was that was led by a, a former Confederate general and live in a town named after uh, you know a former chief Confederate. So all of that stuff, you you know, you, th- that's part well, of your life. It's even more insidious than that. I mean, you know, in Germany, if you wave the uh, Nazi flag, mm-hmm. uh, you can be prosecuted. You know, mm-hmm. but here, although we expended many lives. And much money defeating Germany and the Third Reich. The fact is, here we not only tolerate and defend people waving the flag, we've got people in power 
were defending it uh, as being almost benign when we know it's a hate-filled gesture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's just all admit it's a hate-filled gesture. And mm-hmm. so what you're saying is, yeah, I get they hate people, and that's okay. But to act as if waving the Confederate flag or waving the Nazi flag is not a gesture of hate. It minimizes and diminishes what we know to be truth, which is that this was the enemy. It was never our friend. Nazis were never our friend. The Confederacy, you know, you talk about the Third Reich last 12 years, I don't really know, but I know this. Apparently the Confederacy was only three years. Yeah, you know, th- three, to, three to five. It. Yeah, they're defending it as heritage. And people point out wisely, no, no, three to five years does not a heritage create. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's heritage. So, yeah, it's just craziness. Uh, it is uh, you know, when I arrived here uh, from Chicago and I, I started the gun range, I remember early on guys would come in and, and you know, they mistook me for, you know, a r- regular gun range owner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'd say, oh, yeah, I was down in my deer lease and I got myself a eight-pointer, you know, and I would look at them and say, you know, I'm not in the least bit interested. And they'd be looking at me like, what? And I'm like, listen. You know, I never had to kill an animal. I never had an animal threaten me. So I never had to kill an animal. Mm-hmm. The only thing I'm shooting is something that's threatening me. And the only thing ever threatened me had two legs. You know, <laughs> and eventually, yeah. people stopped bringing up, you know, the hunting tails. You may, I don't know if you knew this. We never sold any hunting supplies. We never sold Yeah, I, no, I, noti- I noticed that, yeah. I yeah, did, no- I did notice that. They were only tactical weapons which were applicable for home defense or police or security or personal defense. There was no, you know, I didn't have any uh, attraction to hunting rifles or hunting handguns. I stuck to what I knew. Of course, part of that is, growing up in Chicago, there was nothing to hunt. I don't know what, you know, and, and you couldn't carry a gun, a handgun or a rifle. So, you know, it's part of my my upbringing and uh, you know the only purpose to carry a gun was for personal protection now that now that knowing was one of my, my only conviction in chicago was uh, uh for uh possession now uh, knowing all of that knowing your your background of being from a you know an affluent jewish kid who, who you know finds himself on the on the opposite side of the law and then you go to law school you have all those experiences there, and then you move to Texas and you become a Buddhist and all. How has and I think you and I have had I should say I think I know you and I have had this discussion before. You're divorced now, and we talk about dating. What's that? You know what? It what is? I can see for a guy like you, dating in Texas is I can't I can't see that. This is going to sound horrible, but I can't see that being a winning proposition based on the type of person that I know you are as opposed to the people that are potentially in the dating demographic that that you know that is desired by you yeah you know people online dating is very popular they say 20% or more of all new relationships start online <laughs> so if you're a single guy like me you have to be open to the possibility of that and my experience is... No, I mean online uh, or Dallas, off, period, you know? Yeah, yeah, Dallas is so Christian. 
that, uh, you know, the odds of me getting a date being Jewish and or Buddhist and or both <laughs> have minimized my access to the dating pool. Um, I had a woman who sent me a message on Match.com about a, a week ago. Uh -huh. And I'm like, oh, great, because I get so little response. You know, I, I think I've told you I've sent out about 60 or more little messages when I joined. I went through, you know, hundreds, I, I think, profiles and sent messages. Said, ah, you seem interested. Got, like, no return for my investment, okay? Uh -huh. So I'm always excited when somebody initiates contact with me, right? Uh -huh. Wow, you know, hi. So I'm like, hi, you know, then short chat, and then it comes. Oh, so are you a Christian? Because on my, on my profile, I took out being uh, Buddhist uh, or Jewish, I don't remember which, and said, I'm more spiritual than religious. That's one of the boxes, you know? Mm -hmm. so are you Christian? I wrote back and said, no. No, I said, I'm, I'm now guessing you're looking for a Christian man. And she said, yeah, yeah, I am. Thank you very much. Um, so something in my profile caught her attention in the short run uh, but the fact that I wasn't Christian was a deal killer well you know um, Ken, okay. Ken, Ken something I read that said that 93% of people on death row in the US oh no it said 93% of serial killers in prison identify as Christian so maybe maybe Christian isn't necessarily the base, best label but I understand in the south that seems to matter but in any case <laughs> I can tell you I've led numerous profiles of women who say, I'm looking for a man with Christian values. And I'm like, I'm not sure what they mean. I get they don't want me. Yeah, I would I, say if, I, if, if, if I read a profile and a woman said they're looking for Christian values, I would say, Ken, that doesn't matter. That's not for you. That's just like me watching the news and a politician says the will of the American people. Anytime a black person says sees the words or here's the will of the American people, That's that means the will of the American white people. That doesn't mean us. <laughs> you know, so if you say, yeah, so if someone says it's the will of the American people, oh, that ain't, he's not talking about us. And if you say Christian values, yeah, I know. I would tell you, Ken, don't even bother. But in any case, I interrupted you. Well, right, and I recognize that this, you know, this means something to them. The, you know, the funny part to me is I go to myself, I say to myself, well, what do they think my value system would be? <laughs> do they think yeah. that Jews or Buddhists or other people, we eat children? I mean, what, what, what is it, what do they think? I mean, Jews practice a Judeo-Christian ethic, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where Christian values supposedly were originally derived from. So, yeah. I mean, yes, I don't reach out to those people, but I always kind of, think to myself, I wonder what they're thinking. Doesn't matter. I'm not I'm not terribly wrapped around the axle about what they're thinking, but yeah, I think if you're a, a Jewish man and you're not particularly married to the Jewish community, mm -hmm. then dating in Dallas is difficult because uh, there is a bent towards uh, uh, Christians uh, this is the Bible Belt, and, uh, you know, I think I would do better to leave, and it's one of the reasons I'm thinking of leaving, besides the fact that our governor, our lieutenant governor, and our attorney general are to the right of Attila the Han. I think the, uh, the dating thing's been a difficult since my divorce years ago. Um, 
I haven't found it uh, easy by any means. Uh, and, and there's nobody uh, here who has said, oh, poppycock. You know, I dismissed that concern. Yeah. Uh, because everybody knows. It's a... Uh, uh, Dallas is home to, what is his name, Jeffress? Oh, uh, yeah, First Baptist Church yeah, Pastor. Yeah, First Baptist yeah. Church of Dallas, uh, which is on a part Robert, with... Robert Jeffress, uh, yeah. Church. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's there are mega churches, especially with Baptists. We have these massive Baptist churches here. I grew up with a lot of Catholics, and eventually Catholics and Jews are frequently found married together because... At some point, when you grow up, you're, you're working together, you're doing stuff together, and, mm-hmm. you know, it just kind of unfolds. But here, um, it doesn't seem to play out that way. Well, Ken, uh, what I, I think agree. about, like here, living in Beverly Hills, what's amazing to me is, you know, Beverly Hills is obviously an in, a, a city within Los Angeles, but the vast majority of people in Beverly Hills are are of the Jewish faith. And they may be, they may be Persian, they may be Israeli, they may be American, but by far and large, you, you know, the Jewish faith is the is the predominant faith in in Beverly Hills. Now I know in California as a whole, you know, people tend to tend to let you. From what I've seen, they let you do whatever you want to do. Maybe maybe you give this a try, and I don't know if Match will allow it. Maybe. Maybe pick out just say pick out my zip, change your zip code on the profile, and just just for as a test, change your zip code to nine zero two one zero, or pick out a Santa Monica zip code or something, and put it in your profile, and and then you know test ping a couple of people in this area, and see or do that in some other area, and that will let you know. To some degree, your your market marketability. I mean, I'm I'm not Jewish, but yeah, my marketability in Dallas, Texas, is certainly not the same as it is here. Uh, you know. Well, I, I listened to your first podcast, and I I noted that when you did online, you got immediate response. I know some of it was crap, but um, you got some genuine people initiate contact with you. I I swear to you. Uh, I, my initiating contact feels so useless. I mean, for the effort I put into sending out, you know, reading somebody's full profile, then trying to craft a meaningful response, uh-huh. you know, not just go, hey, baby, what's up? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I had to give some thought and type it out. And then, you know, after a while, you're like, I, I don't want to put any effort into this. Um, you're thinking to yourself, how can I say the least amount and still try to communicate so that just in case she would be interested, she doesn't think I'm an idiot based on my initial uh, writing. But um, so I've been on about two months on this uh, uh, paid site. I was on some mm-hmm. free ones before, and I'm about done. Well, try I'm about done. Try it's some other. Try uh, some other place. Just try, you know, see if, if Match.com will allow you to say, change your zip code, your location to Austin. So for for a week, just change your zip code to someplace in Austin and send out messages and, and see. And what, then, happens if, what happens if uh, I, somebody, uh, I've contacted somebody I think I might really like? And they're, they're well, then you tell away. them. 
you tell them you tell them the truth. Say I was not having much success in the area that I live in. I'm contem- I'm contemplating moving. One of the dimensions of me moving has been looking for better success in my romantic health, so I decided to to test the waters just to see and then let it let it go from there. So if you change your profile settings from say uh Dallas to Austin and you send out, you know, 20 messages and you get 10 back or whatever or 5 back that are favorable then you know, hey, Austin's potentially a place where I'm accepted. Maybe try Houston. Maybe try LA, you know, try try different places. But I would I would say that yeah, a guy like me or you setting up a dating profile in 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 Dallas, Texas is you know, we're just putting money in somebody's pocket cuz realistically the people the vast majority anything can happen. But the vast majority of people that are on those sites aren't looking for anyone that looks like me or that that fits you. So I would say see if you can change the change the location and try sending out some and see what what comes from that and then you know if if they do reach out just have that just have that honest conversation you know, with them i might do that i don't know if you you know that i have uh, uh i have uh, announced that uh i am exploring moving uh for several months to thailand to live in a hilltop temple high school buddhist high school where the Two monks I know are trying to teach English and have asked me mm-hmm. would I come help them, <laughs> even though I don't speak Thai. So, uh, but if you go there, you got to quarantine for 15 nights in a hotel. You got to do COVID testing before you come while you're there. And what's the, what's, and, what's the dating of, scene going to be like at a at a Buddhist temple? <laughs> you know, completely shut down, completely, completely shut down. But at least I won't feel rejected. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, but at the same at the same time, it's it, you know, wouldn't you, you know, I could under I could see where that would be appealing to you. But at the same time, I could see where, where potentially knowing that I have some value, no one's you know, I might not be in, like I look at it now as you know, as a pandemic, and I'm not involved with anybody romantically, but I know that the odds are great that you know it's been proven that there's there are there are options for me here. So that so that whenever I decide or whenever society, you know, whenever the whenever the health scare and stuff is taken, you know, is 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 on the is subsiding and I'm interested in in, you know, dipping my toes back. I know that I have some degree of desirability. Uh, Uh, I I won't denigrate the value of your uh, podcast by pissing and moaning about dating. Um, no, I mean, I was you, you I was know. just curious about about your experiences after all the things oh, we no, talked no, about. No, no. And, I, and I don't mean to suggest it doesn't it wouldn't have some value, but um, I'm I'm concerned that for a new podcaster, uh, first off, you probably should cut this one up into in the parcels, uh, you know, edible parcels, and uh, you know, I. Uh, Listen, I get to whining about the, the social scene <laughs> and the romance and everything. You know, I'm either going to elicit crocodile tears or you, it's going to, your audience is going to, you know, 
turn off their computers and go do something else because they're going to. Well, well, you know what? You know what? You know what, Ken? I'd answer that in two ways. I'd answer, I'd give three answers of that. Number one, you're my friend long before anyone else that's probably listening that's probably listening to this number two i don't have a tremendous audience you know for this this podcast and number you know number three my expectations are actually not that great i'm just having fun you know seeing what seeing what happens so i'd much rather have a long conversation with you like i've learned something in this conversation and if and if nobody else listens to it i don't you know I don't care. You know, me oh, and you yeah, listen to it. It's the kind of conversation you and I have had a, a dozen times or more. Yeah. Anyways, so for me, it's fine. You know, I get to talk to uh, Dennis, and, and that's great. So, yeah, I got no qualms about it. But uh, if you want to build up a podcast audience, my God, you you start out with this disability. Ah. <laughs> no, I look at it the other the other angle because I'd rather have people. Remember at the start of this, I said my idea is to share the stories and interactions with people that are that have meant something to me. I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to be a social media influencer thinking what is out there for people that what what do they want to talk about? Let's talk about the Grammys. Let's talk. I, I don't even I don't even keep up with the vast majority of things that take place in the world anyway. So I don't know who won movie awards, who won music awards. I, you know, what albums are coming out or, or, or really anything that's, like I said, I'm kind of a Walter Mitty. I'm in my own little world. So a lot of the things that I guess would be interesting to, you know, podcast to the normal person. I don't, you know, I don't have any, common body of knowledge or any base to that so i figured i would i'd rather have people know that hey ken goldberg exists and here's a guy listen to a guy talk about his friendship as opposed to you know what do you think about the latest you know stevie nicks album well you're doomed to the exile but uh and by the way mark this day this is also the day that the supreme court uh told the uh Pennsylvania Republicans to go screw themselves when they tried to block certification of the election results. I so don't know, Supreme man. Court all all this win, all this winning. What is this like now? One in one in forty nine. Uh, they have. Uh, I don't think the. I don't think there's been a court that has given a full victory at any point to the GOP, and in thirty five of the fifty cases. They have dismissed or in some other way resolved uh, not to the benefit of the uh, GOP. Now, this is the first one, I believe, to hit the Supreme Court post-election. Yeah. And the Supreme Court, not the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court denied a request to block certification of Pennsylvania's election results. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's crazy out there. And the other thing... Uh, I saw an interview on CNN with this Hispanic doctor in Houston. Uh-huh. He was tending to COVID patients, and I remember him distinctly because he was there, and he said, I, you know, I've already met hundreds of COVID patients, and he said, you know, uh, they were asking him questions about COVID. He said, you know, three weeks ago, I would have said this. But in those three weeks, he said, almost every three weeks, my perception and understanding of COVID has changed. 
it's that fluid a situation. And I, I open up my computer today, and that doctor he died, died of COVID. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it's it, it's sad, you know. That's a whole that now that's a whole different, that's a whole different uh, podcast topic, you know. You know, like I I, I no, it. but it's happened on this day. I'm just I'm saying yeah. it because I'm just day while you and I were talking. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of news that's going yeah. on in the world. Give our give our conversation some historical context. Yeah, at this moment in history, kind of like what is it, Paul Harvey, and now you know the rest of the story. So Ken, Ken, keep me posted. I mean, if you decide to bail out and and go to Thailand, let me know. Or if you decide to stay here, you know, at least give you know give my give my dating thing a a, a thought. Try try changing. I'm giving it. a thought. Try oh, changing yeah, no, it just no. to see. No, no, I'm open to that possibility. I'm going to look into that. Mm-hmm. I will. All right. Well, I, I know. I know. I've we we've uh, we've been talking a whole lot. I was initially thinking this is only going to be forty five minutes, but like I said, it's always it's always fun talk. It's always fun talking to you. And and if nobody, I'll, I'm going to put this on. Uh, I'll post it and send you the link. If nobody listens to it but me and you, I'm still I'm still just as happy and just as thrilled, you know. And well, and like I say, it's not it's the kind of conversation you and I would have had anyway. So yeah. Yeah, it's just a conversation among friends that we would have had for yeah. probably the same amount of time anyway. It wasn't rehearsed, so it's not like I wasted time writing my answers down. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, Ken, right, if, if I don't if I don't talk to if I don't talk to you, you know, before the the end of the year, which I'm sure I probably will. So I guess that's that's a moot point. I know you've got a you've got a your own podcast coming up this evening, and then the meditation Zoom tomorrow. So Good luck, good luck with those, and, and hey, keep me posted, man. Thank you, man. All right, we'll talk to you later. All right, be safe. All right, thanks again. Ken Goldberg, everybody. Bye.